You're tuned into the Arc Sober Recovery Podcast. My name is AJ. I'm not an addiction counselor, specialist, or professional. On this podcast, you'll hear discussion regarding 12-step recovery programs and how they have impacted our lives. However, the podcast is not a promotion or an endorsement of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. The opinions shared on this show are those of the individual speaker. If you or someone you love is suffering from addiction and needs help, call Recovery Centers of America at 1-855-487-9626. There you will find detox, inpatient and outpatient services in Danvers and Westminster, Mass. Not all locations have the same services, so check the website, recoverycentersofamerica.com. In addition to the two Massachusetts facilities, you can find two facilities in Maryland, five facilities in New Jersey, and two in Pennsylvania. Another recovery treatment option is Banyan Treatment Center, started by pro skateboarder Brendan Novak. The number here is 1-888-643-1286. Locations include Massachusetts, Illinois, Pennsylvania, and Florida. Also, help with addiction can be received at Foundations Recovery Network, foundationsrecoverynetwork.com. 1-855-817-7317. Locations include California, Georgia, Illinois, Michigan, and Tennessee. October Recovery Podcast, Episode 21. talking about that meeting we just came from and that guy so they do a burning desire the guy raised his hand and he starts saying how he had a couple days together and then and then last night he tied one on yeah and it's like i need that's what i need to hear yeah when i go to those meetings because it's a razor's edge absolutely it keeps it up front makes you think about wanting to go drink a drug or what the outcome for you is the outcome, that's what it makes me. Like, I could sit in that chair and be crying tomorrow morning. Absolutely. So, welcome, Sean. Remember we, we came from that alcathon, and my friend came up to you and talked about how she loved how you said you were an addict in an AA meeting? Yep. You remember that? Yep. Just, let's let's hit on that, because that was important. I went to a meeting, and it was a bunch of old-timers, and they... Um they kind of frowned upon people saying that they're an addict at meetings. And at this time, I was newly sober, and I knew I wanted to be sober, and nobody was going to tell me different. If I was at a meeting, if I'm an addict or an alcoholic, I'm going to say how I felt. Because for me, that's how I stood sober, was keeping everything up front. So when it came around, everybody, everybody was like, oh, don't say addict alcoholic addict because they frown upon it so me being the person that i am i couldn't wait for it to come to me so the instead of saying i'm an alcoholic alcoholic addict i had to say i'm an addict alcoholic and and i'm not even a big drinker i've never been a big drinker but for me to identify as an alcoholic is the lifestyle and not coming home for days, not showering for days, not, not, not. I think whether you're an addict or an alcoholic, you can definitely claim that seat because you've been there. And nobody has lived your life but you. So nobody's going to tell me what I'm going to identify with. If I'm an alcoholic or an addict, I know what I am. And I know what keeps me sober. And if this point in my life I identify as an alcoholic because 
I have them alcoholic tendency. I can't stop at one drug. I just keep going and it doesn't stop. And that's the same thing for an alcoholic with the drink. Once you stop, you can't stop. So that's why I identify as an alcoholic because I'm an alcoholic and I can't stop. You know, it's it, so this is interesting because I can, I feel like I can identify as an addict because alcohol is a drug. And when I start using alcohol, I can't stop. It, everything's mind altering. So is it a semantic game? Like, can I, can I call, like, I'm not saying you have the answer, but why can't I go around and say I'm an addict? And that's, that's the, th okay, so right now I'm sponsoring a kid that's in N.A. He asked me to be his sponsor and bring him through the book. Why? If you're a drug addict, why are you asking me as an alcoholic to bring you through the book? Because it's the same thing. It all originated from that AA book. It all has the same outcome. So you can identify as anything. I steal cars for a living, and I love the thrill. But I'm at an AA meeting because once I steal that first car, I can't stop. You know? So it's the lifestyle. It's not the alcoholic, the drug addict, the thief, the gambler. It's not. It's, it's the way you live. And that's why in that book, they tell you you can apply that book to any aspect of your life, even a non-alcoholic, people that don't live like us, because it's principles and morals of how you live. And I'm not the best at it. When I read the book, I remind myself, this is what I did. That's why it's so much harder for somebody else to read the book themselves, opposed to have, having somebody read it to them. Because I could read it myself, sit in a detox and read it, and I don't even understand this thing. And Let's be honest, addicts and alcoholics, we're not the smartest people. You might have college degrees and everything, but you're definitely not the smartest person if you're sitting here with me, you know? So I'm the type of person where when I'm reading something, I can understand it. But if somebody's reading it to me, I understand it that much better. That's cool. Yeah, I like that. That makes sense to me because when I'm in a big book meeting, I'm, I, always go to my, I always go like this to myself. This book is unbelievable. Like it this is. book is unbelievable, but what do I do when I get back in my truck? I put it in my console and shut it, yeah. and then I usually don't see the book again till next week. Absolutely, but that's just the truth. I mean, that's so maybe I don't know. It doesn't. It, it's about applying the principles to your life of how they lived after they were an alcoholic, because you can be an alcoholic in recovery and still be insane. I have my moments. Oh yeah, you know, I have my moments where I'm not the best recovering alcoholic. And I, I mean, I'm not the worst, but I'm definitely not the best. And, and I make my mistakes. I fight with my wife. You know, I, I'm human. Yeah. But to your point about um, reading together, you know, reading the book with another person, that just makes a lot of sense to me. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's so cool when you have a room full of, in my case, there's a men's group that I've been going to reading the book and everybody's nodding their head going, yep. And I love it because, and I say this, that book doesn't have any lies in it. No, and that's what I try to tell everybody I help. The thing that kept me sober is honesty. Honesty, honesty, honesty. And I ask anybody I've ever helped, that's all I beat into them, is you have to be true to yourself. You have to be honest with every, no matter how much it's going to hurt you and the people around you, speak your mind. Speak your mind because that's what keeps you sober. And you can ask my wife and all her family. I do not hold back. Does that make me an asshole? Maybe it does. But I'm sober today. Yeah, and it helps with not gaining <laughs> resentments. Exactly. Because you get it out. Exactly. And I mean, there's a point to where you can kind of not be like, your fucking hair looks stupid today. Why well, yeah, I mean, like I'm not going to be. You, you, no, this yeah. is, I mean, I'm just saying. Yeah, and, and that brings you me back. You can be honest without, like, causing fights everywhere you go. Yeah, and that brings me back to my family. My family says all the time that I'm so unapproachable. Why am I the unapproachable one? It must be because you have something to hide, and you think I'm going to figure it out. And not saying that they do, but a lot of people don't want to hear what other people have to say. They don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to hear the truth. Yeah. It's worked for almost five years for me. And if that means nobody wants to talk to me because I speak the truth, so be it. Mm. I'm still sober. 
That's a good point with um, for newcomers too, and you know we try to reach our hand out to people like that we see hurting, like that guy. You don't get more beat up than that guy we saw this morning. I no. mean, crying in a meeting, just asking for help. And um, but my thing, and that's where the honesty comes in, though. Absolutely. Sorry. But if it, he ever can't, you know, you tell him it's first of all he's gonna be okay because he he is gonna be okay, but he needs he needs to follow. He needs to follow us. And my thing with that is, is what I would have said to him was, are you here crying because you're drinking or are you here crying because you know when you get home, your wife's going to kick you out? Because that's what the main thing was before he started crying. The last thing he said is, I know when I get home, my wife's going to ask me to leave. Then he started crying. Give her a break. Give your family a break. So that topic has been coming up a lot lately. It's um, It's about wives and 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 spouses and for instance there's a couple um you know i know a couple of guys who are going through the phase where and it's not even a phase it's just a situation where their wives or spouses aren't in the program and don't understand the program and these guys are trying to get sober going to meetings and the spouse is like what about me and what about the family well, without that meeting, there is no family. There is no me. <laughs> you know, there is no... It, it, the, regardless, no matter what you do, the, the drugs and alcohol are going to come first. It's going to come before your newborn baby. It's going to come before anything in your life. It doesn't matter what it is. So when you get clean, you have to put that recovery, no matter how you do it, before anything. That has to come before anything. You pray to God to keep you sober. You pray, they say God first, sobriety next. No, 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 no. You got to keep your sobriety to pray to God. You got to keep your sobriety to keep your family and to keep everything you got. It's tough because, you know, you can't blame the spouse for not understanding. No, no. I mean, you can, you know, there is Al-Anon. But you can't, you know, I mean. You can't force that on them either. You can't force that on them. You can't put your shortcomings on your family. So if that means you have to remove yourself from that situation for a little while, and if you don't get back together, it wasn't meant to be. I was just going to say, what if that, what if, what if in the situation where you tell the, the kid you're trying to help go to meetings, give it, give the relationship some time but you got to get to meetings first and then the relationship suffers because of it well it's easy for us to say because me personally i wasn't in that situation but i knew if i didn't keep myself if i didn't keep my recovery first there is no relationship and if if you don't if she can't understand that you're trying to get sober to keep this marriage or this relationship or this family together then Maybe you should think about stepping stepping out of it and, and trying to put your recovery first, and hopefully later you'll be able to mend that back together. Even if that means you go into a listen, I have to go to the sober house. I have to go to this recovery place. I have to get my mind straight. Nine out of ten times they're willing to work with you because they love you. Right. I know it's it's tough though because they don't know. I know it's 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 one of those tricky situations getting sober, you know. The- yeah, and then you have like all the stuff you did when you were in the relationship while you were drinking and drugging, you know, like if you cheated on her. All oh, the collateral damage. And maybe she can't look past that, you know. And it, it, my wife, like, still to this day, I'm almost five years sober, and still to this day, she's going through my phone. She's doesn't fully trust me and that's not because I was a good person <laughs> it's not you know and it's not that I I came into the relationship with lies because I was an addict already for 20 years whether you're with her from high school till you just got with her you're still that same person you still had that them same tendencies you were still doing the same stuff and she knows she knew you before you got into the relationship and she's known you for however long going through the relationship with you, how you are. Oh yeah. In some, in some ways you can't blame them because we did cause that damage and they're in defense mode, you know, they're in defense mode. And that's so many, like we're we're not gonna, I mean, maybe somebody listening 
will get something out of this conversation and some won't and it's okay because there's 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 um we're all so different like me my wife isn't an alcoholic um understands alcoholism because she has listened to me for the past eight years talk about meetings and the disease and allergy and 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 spiritual loss of values so she knows she never went to Al-Anon but she's a smart girl and she is patient she's a good listener I, I don't know and she knows if you don't keep this recovery up front there is no there's not going to be a relationship she does but she you know we went through a, a you know sometimes even still she she is I'm sure uh, you know let's like yes don't go uh, to a meeting be home but I was talking to my friend Chris yesterday and and there's so many levels of this and he and he and then we talked about this for a while and he, he was like so that's when as in recovery you have to a shift comes and you have to sort of okay so you're you're recovery you're living a sober life you got you work in the program am I going and you say to yourself okay am I going to meetings now to be selfish or am I going to get recovery in other words Am I going just to be like, oh, I'm Chris, you know, I'm AJ, I'm, I'm a recovering alcoholic, I go to meetings, that's what I do, I'm going to this meeting when I should be home? Well, and that's the thing you have to figure out because a lot of it, it is ego-driven. You got to figure, exactly. Alcoholics and addicts have, have very, very big egos and it's hard to, it's hard to differ- differentiate each other from being normal to my ego. And that's what that that big book helps you with, and that's why the normal person can apply that to their life, because we're all so ego driven. So now, when you walk into a meeting, and I just had this with a kid that I help, he always liked to raise his hand and be heard in the meeting. And you go to any meeting in Massachusetts, and everybody's like, "Hey, how you doing? How you doing?" To him, and I'm like. Why don't you step back from that for a little while and, and and not speak? Because every time you raise your hand, it's an ego thing for you. And he's and and he didn't point it out or nothing. I was just bringing it up to him because you have to be heard at every single meeting you go. And he's he looked at me. He's like, you know, Sean, you're right. It is an ego thing for me. I'm like, I know. I've been there. I know. I'm not the one to raise my hand at every meeting. You know, I don't like the attention, but maybe that's a problem for me because I don't like the attention. But a lot of people like are very ego driven and it keeps them, it keeps them sick. It keeps your mind sick because I'm always worried about what that other person is thinking about me. And that's why I make it known in every single commitment or or any time that I share that I don't care what anybody thinks about me anymore. I do not care what anybody thinks about me anymore. Thank been, you, God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've been in and out of my jail my whole life from state prisons to county prisons. And the main thing, uh, uh, like the ego and... and and the macho-ness of being a man and everything, living that prison life, was everybody else's acceptance. I had to have everybody else like me. Now I say it all the time, just to let people know where I'm at. I can go home, watch Lifetime, and cry because I do not care what anybody else thinks of me because I'm happy today. I'm not an addict. Mm. I'll always be an addict, but I'm not running the streets, getting high, and having to live that life anymore. I just don't. It's uh, awesome. That, that book saved my life from that. Tell me about it. Let's hear your story. Tell me about that life that you lived. I heard I heard your story over over at the center there, and uh, it's good. I want to share it with well, people. It's going to be a long day if you want to hear the life. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you got. Well, you know, I come from a big family south of here and uh you know my mother we grew up with 11 kids in our family and i think out of the 11 kids there's three of us there's three of them that weren't addicts 
and that was the two youngest, well, the three youngest. How they did it, I have no idea, you know. I have, um, from my oldest sister, my oldest sister is, uh, she's, uh, I wouldn't say she's a full-out addict. Well, she is, but she isn't. Her problem was with, with, with selling drugs, selling heroin, and, and, and using it every once in a while, but thinking it's better because she was selling it. And, and having that control over people is still that addict mentality, but she can't ad- identify with that. So anyway, she... um. You know, growing up, we, we, all my uncles, everything, they all sold heroin. My mother sold coke. My mother was a bartender. You know, I have uncles that got deported, snuck back, where, you know, my whole family's from Portugal. And, um, it was just, I mean, don't get me wrong, we lived a good childhood because my mother did the best for what, what she had. But, we were always around that all that the drugs, you know. When we were younger, the house, not my house. I cannot say my mother's house ever got raided until we got older, <laughs> and then, you know, like from my uncles and stuff. Like we, they would always like it would be like the apartment downstairs from us that they were in would get raided. My uncle built a treehouse for us that got raided. Um. How they got the search warrant for the treehouse, I don't know. <laughs> I would love to see that today, <laughs> but um, it, it was just the the craziness. And and my uncles used to my uncles used to pay us to say that they were um, to to let them know if there was a detective cause. Because growing up, we already knew what all the detective cars were. We already knew what they looked like. All the undercover cars, we knew. So my uncles would give us twenty dollars every time we've seen one, and uh, we, me and my brothers, came up with this scheme. Every time we seen a cop park, we'd run inside the house and tell my uncles that <laughs> there's a detective outside. He'd, he'd, they'd go outside, look, they'd see a car that wasn't parked there before, and give us twenty dollars. <laughs> so I mean, I'm I'm sure eventually they caught on. They pro- we were probably taking all their profits because <laughs> there was eleven of us running upstairs, <laughs> and. Uh, you know, we lived our life like that for a long time, and, and it was pretty inevitable that me and my brothers were going to pick up the family business and uh, run with it, you know? So as we got older, you know, it started out with the weed and 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 coke and then started selling the heroin, and then before you know it, we're all in and out of jail. You know, I have a, um older brother that died in jail, OD'd. I have uh, my oldest sister. She um, she did uh, three to five years. She was out for two months, and then uh, two weeks ago, she just got sentenced to another five to seven years for selling heroin. And like they all know that I'm sober, and they all know when they're in jail that I help them. And just because I know the feeling of not having somebody there. And I haven't spoken to my sister and, and since for about nine months now because I know she know, she doesn't want to hear what I have to say. And it was funny because I'm going to see my friend that's in jail in New Hampshire. And on the way up there, I'm feeling guilty because I haven't spoken to my sister. And I know it's her fault and everything, but I know the feeling of growing up and, and sitting in jail. And we were all close when we were growing up. So my sister was the one that kept the family together when my mother died. And now it's like, I'm the only one left to keep the family together. And, and so I called my sister's daughter, my niece, and and, and I'm like, and I said to her, I'm like, you know, um, I want to go see your mother. And she was like, uh, my mother's been wanting to call you. I'm like, so why didn't she? And she's like, she's scared. I'm like, how is my older sister scared to call me? And she's like, Uncle Sean, you know why. You know why. 
And I'm like, no, I know. And she's like, can I ask you something? I'm like, what? She's like, I heard you've been going to like jails and 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 up places and helping people and speaking. And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, you do that? And I'm like, yeah. She's like, my mother was telling me that you do that because she was at a meet. Oh, well, a girl she's in jail with was at a meeting and heard you speak. And uh, my mother couldn't believe you of all people were out trying to help people. And I'm like, why would your mother not think I would help people? And she's like, come on, Sean, because it's you. And it, that kind of hit me like, who do I think I am? You know what I mean? Like, like they all know me as being macho and, and, and trying to prove... They don't know I'm trying to prove stuff, but I, I, I know in my head that I'm trying to make my, make myself be bigger than what I really am when I'm running the streets and uh, I'm doing what I'm doing. So they always looked up to me and my older brothers as the tough guys. And whenever they have problems, they call us and we go take care of it. So now when they... And I've never been one to, to, to talk about my feelings or, or talk about my life in front of people. I just never done that. I always looked at it as a sign of weakness. And when she said that to me, like, we just couldn't believe that you do that. It kind of, like, made me think, like, who do I think I am? You know, because I'm a totally different person now. I was just going to say it, the change. Yeah, and that's yeah. the gifts of the book. And so, like I said, I have um, my my older sister. She's in jail. My older brother died in jail. I have a younger brother that's doing 16 years in the in the feds for robbing banks. That me and him talk pretty much every day. He emails me, you know, because they can email there, and we email back and forth, you know. And I I try to help them as much as I can, and. I have a younger brother that's, I don't know if he's coming or going because he's, he just moved back from Maryland a little while back and he's just, he thinks being sober, smoking weed and doing whatever. But I mean, if that works for you and you're not shooting heroin, I, I so be it. Me as an addict, I can't do that because I'll smoke weed today and I'll be shooting heroin tomorrow. I have, um, uh, Two younger sisters that are uh, prostitutes that just can't get, can't, like they've been in and out of programs and, and they just can't seem to get it, you know? And I, as many times as I've tried to help, they don't call me anymore for help because they know what I'm going to say and they don't want to hear it. So... Where I'm from, everybody runs around, oh, Sean thinks he's better than this, Sean thinks he's better than that. I don't. I just don't live the same lifestyle anymore. And if you call me, I'm going to answer. If you don't call me, I am not going to call you because I knew when I was getting sober, every time I called somebody, it was lies. That's it. It was how I was going to manipulate the whole situation. And they know they can't do that with me, so they don't call me. And I'm not going to call them. And if that takes another one of my family members dying, there's nothing I can do about it anymore. It's it's in God's hands now. There's nothing I can do because I've tried so many times. I have a nephew, my older brother's son. He uh, He's in and out of jail, in and out of detox. He's shooting heroin. And I have a nephew, my oldest sister's son, a couple years ago, was playing with a handgun at a party, you know, sells heroin and stuff, was dancing with the handgun. He shot himself in the head, killed himself. I have two older kids, you know, my oldest son, thank God, he, he finally smartened up, but he was another one. Selling heroin, got the house raided, got caught with a gun, a bunch of heroin. He's a good kid now, but he had to figure this stuff out on his own. I have a 19-year-old son. I mean, me and him, we don't have the greatest relationship just because I had to step back and realize that he would never call me and say, hey, Dad, how you doing, like my older son does. And don't get me wrong, I'm there for all my kids. Whatever they need, they know they call me, I'm going to take care of it. 
But my middle son would have my ex call me and say, I need money for this, I need money for that. And he wouldn't even call me and say, Dad, happy birthday, or Dad, Merry Christmas, or anything. I wouldn't talk to this kid for months. And he only, and at least once every week or every two weeks, I'm sending him money. And I don't even talk to him. So finally, I woke up after hearing my wife telling me, like, you got to realize what you're doing. Uh, of years of her telling me this, like, you're not even helping the situation because he's looking at you as a bank, as his ATM machine. And, and every time I would say before, I'm all done, I'm not giving you money, me and him would fight. He'd call me just to fight, and then we wouldn't talk for, for a long time. So now... If you can't realize that I love you and you're 21 years old, that I love you and and I will do anything for you and not be your bank and you don't want to talk to me, I have to let that go. And that's what that book did for me. It made me realize that I have to let it go. You call me, I'll pick up that phone. You don't call me, I'm not, I can't, I can't bring my family through this no more. I can't. I did what I did to to you when you were a kid. I, I, I tried making life amends and, and help the situation. I can't help it if you don't let me help it. And, and that it's tough to swallow, but... And don't get me wrong, I'm still a sucker for him because his birthday just passed and, and I told my oldest son, give your, give your brother $100 for his birthday. Tell him I said happy birthday. So I'll send, because they live together, and I'll send messages to, to my oldest son to him just to let him know that I'm always here for him. Send the money on Christmas. And and I never got a phone call. Thank you, Dad. I, I don't get none of that. I Do I expect it? No, I don't expect it. I don't do something for recognition. I don't. But you're still my son, so I, I kind of, yes, I kind of do expect it, you know? <laughs> It'd be nice. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so anyway, I have, uh, you know, my mother died when we were young. I think uh, the, old, the youngest were twins, and uh, I think they were around six when my mother died. And, um, you know, it was tough after that, and... and it was real tough after that, you know, and I grew, we grew up as a tight, tight family, and once my mother died, we, we all just went our separate ways, you know, we all started fighting and, and not talking, and me and my older brother, the one that died in jail, you know, we never got along growing up. Well, growing up, we did, but it was like once the drugs came in the situation, me and him just, we, we never got along, you know, I, I always... Out of 11 of us, I was the first one to start doing heroin and, and the last one to start shooting it. That don't make me better. I'm just saying, like, how quick the it progresses. So I was always the piece of shit growing up because I was snorting heroin. And then before I know it, everybody's shooting heroin. <laughs> and it, it was just it was just mind-baffling how quick it works. You know, I got my one of my younger sisters sectioned me, and I went to Bridgewater for 30 days on a section. And by the time I got out from that section, that sister that sectioned me was a full-blown crackhead. It's crazy. It's just crazy to me how the how quick this stuff develops. And is it are you born with this thing? I can't tell you we are. I don't know. But being around it my whole life, it becomes a lifestyle. And, and that's all you know. And drugs is, is I never seen my life without drugs. Never in my life would I, would, would I ever think I would be sitting where I am right now, not scoping out the place, looking for something to steal. Or come back later. And, and today, my life is so simple. You know, I have a four-year-old son, and I say it all the time. This kid is just like me. And, and it's bad to say, but I say it all the time. I think he recruits for ISIS because he is the only kid on grandson, kid on my wife's side. And, and he knows if he wants something, he's getting it. Maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it's the downfall. And this kid keeps me on my toes, you know. I'm happy to wake up 
and see him every day. Where my other two kids, they know me from visiting rooms and seeing them in jail. And oh, yeah, I was there the first couple of years of their life and then I was in jail the rest. And then when I got out of jail, I knew something had to change. I wish I got sober then, but I didn't. But I knew in my heart something had to change. So I didn't go back to that, to living where my family and stuff was. Not that I changed, but something was changing. I didn't get sober till years after, but something was changing because I look where I'm at now. And I say it all the time, you know, this the gifts of sobriety. You know, I drive a nice truck. My wife has a nice, nice car. Um, I have a nice house that we own. And for the normal person to be happy about owning the house is weird to them because that's what they know. For, for me as an addict that nobody in my family out of my brothers and sisters have ever owned a house, it wasn't in my cards to live a normal life and be a citizen. It just wasn't. To pay my taxes, to, to live a normal life, it just, it wasn't. And, and I'm happy today. Like my wife was on the phone with our accountant last night for a few hours and I'm just sitting there watching TV and I'm thinking to myself like, wow, I have an accountant. We have an accountant now. It's crazy. So I have a, a a lot of gratitude for where where my life's at today, and and today I'm able to help people. You know, I'm able to um be there for people. I'm I'm able to. Somebody calls me and says, "You want to go to a meeting at seven o'clock in the morning?" I'm up. You know, I'm able to show up where show up there and be there early and be there happy. You're. Uh, I said that to you last week. Your willingness is it's clear, yeah. I called you two weeks ago and we tried to go to a meeting. <laughs> yeah. And you ended up in Boston and I was like, Oh no, I said to But you left Methuen and you went to Boston and then you drove to Beverly and we still got there twenty minutes early. So yeah. you're willing it's I mean your willingness is is clear. You know, and I think that's you know, we all have like strength. Some some of us get to meetings, some of like I like to go and, and that was a big shortcoming for me because I'm not a big people person, so I didn't like to go to meetings. So I had to step out of my comfort zone and ask somebody to sponsor me that normally I would never ask to sponsor me. You know, I always thought you'd have to be like me to help me. That was my way of thinking. And if I didn't know you, I didn't like you. I didn't talk to you. And, and that's all ego. That's what it is. So for me to step out of my comfort zone, I had to ask somebody that wasn't like me to help me. And at the end of the day, they are like me because we're addicts, alcoholics, but our lifestyles were totally different. I grew up going to jail and thinking that was the normal. That that was the big thing was to to be the tough guy in jail. Now the big thing for me is to pay my bills, to show up when I'm supposed to to be happy, to keep my family happy. And don't get me wrong, I fall short a lot, more than more than probably most, but I'm here today and I can show up and I can honestly say with an open heart that I'm sober and I love being sober. And me and you were just talking about this, about how to approach somebody when they tell you that they've they've messed up and they got high. You know, a lot of people like to come with the warm shoulder. And um, for me, that would have kept me sick of people telling me like it's it, it, it's okay, it's okay to it's okay that you do it. you did that. Just pick the pieces up again and let's get back on track. No, no, it's not okay. For me, it was never okay. For me, I had to be told you're a piece of shit. Look at your family. Who cares about you? Once again, you did it. Once again, you took your will back. Once again, you let everybody down. I had to be broken down to realize I'm not God. I'm not. This world doesn't revolve around me. Like, I have people that call me from jails, and, and I, I try to help them today. You know, I have one of my friends that I go see in jail in New Hampshire. Well, I just went the first time a couple weeks ago. And um, it was weird that, like, how the cops are in jail. Like, they're real arrogant and, and, and real cocky with you. Even, like, I always thought it was just, like, towards the inmates and how they talked. And I never looked at it like 
going in to visit people and, and how they were towards you visiting people, which they're just as bad. Hmm. You know, they're just as arrogant and, and it's all power driven. It's all ego driven. And I had this on the way home. I'm thinking like, wow, this dude's an asshole. Like, who, who does he think he's talking to? But you're a product of your environment. Even though they're CEOs and they're cops, they're around criminals all day long. So they, they're accustomed to that lifestyle too. And it's sad, but it's the truth. So it's really not their fault, you know? Even though, yeah, they're getting paid to watch you, they're still living that same lifestyle. You have 24 hours to do what you do, and they have eight hours to catch you doing what you're doing. So you know what I mean? So it, it, it it's it's crazy. But me always being on that convict side, I never looked at it for what it was. And, and like my friends say to me all the time, like I have one of my best friends today is a Boston cop. Me and him talk all the time. And when I was in the hospital, he used to come to the, to the visit to to my room every morning and the doctors would come in and see a cop in his uniform and if you look at me and I'm covered in tattoos and you look at him you see a cop there you're like so the doctor finally comes in one day and he's like I Sean is it right if I talk to you in private I'm like no whatever you gotta say you can say in front of him and he's like are you okay like, what do you mean am I okay he's like well there's a cop here every morning I'm like he's my best friend and they couldn't they couldn't really, because they see your medical records. They know what you've been through. They couldn't wrap that around their head. And then I had, because they, they knew I told them, I'm a recovering addict. I do not want opiates. And they had a counselor come see me. And this is where I differ from 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 counselors at, at, that work at facilities that, Never lived the life that you lived and and learned it through textbooks. So this counselor comes in. She's a drug counselor. She could not wrap around her head how the big book got me sober. She could not. She was like, so I'm here to see if you want to do the methadone protocol or the suboxone protocol. And I'm like, no. What about the Alcoholics Anonymous protocol? She's like, what's that? I'm like, the big book. She's like, what's the big book? I'm like, you're the drug counselor. You don't know what the big book is? Wow. And, and they were baffled. And this girl would come to my room every day to see if I wanted to get on this Suboxone and Methadone protocol. Because when, when, when Was this at, after your recent accident? Yeah, yeah. And she would come in. And finally, how I got rid of her was my wife was sick of it and was like, you got to go. And don't ever come back here again. Because, and that's the crazy thing about textbook, people learning about our, our addiction on textbooks is they think putting a Band-Aid on the cut is going to help it by giving you the methadone, giving you the Vivitrol, giving you the Suboxone, and whatever else comfort meds they could give you is going to help you when all it does is hold you down. And she couldn't, they just could not wrap it around their head that, I got sober by doing the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. They could not wrap that around their head. So I had to break this down to them like I did the 12 steps, how they were laid out. She, they were like, what do you mean how they were laid out? And she's a counselor. And she's a drug counselor. It, it's it's tough. It, it's So clear this up for me. So nine months ago, you were in that wreck. When were you in that wreck? Uh, May 6th. And why... Is somebody offering you methadone well, when see, you're clean? You've been clean for five years. They don't know that. They just see your records. You know, they see your hospital records. They see your hospital records show them, like, I've had abscesses. I've had, you know, gout. And it's all addict behavior, you know? So when they come, so when you tell them I'm a recovering addict, you're in a Boston hospital. They're like, yeah, okay, <laughs> you ain't no recovering addict. But they don't know no better. You know what and I mean? And the first thing out of her, well, like the first thing out of her mouth was that? Yeah. Like offering you? Trying hmm. to get me on a, some kind of protocol. We were just talking about this, the business of recovery, man. And it drives me nuts. Yeah. Because 
like we were just saying, yes, I understand it's an anonymous program. It is. Everything should be kept secret. You don't want people, if your circle of people don't agree with what you do, maybe you should think about that. But that doesn't mean you have to let them know you're an addict. But no addict is better than the next one. So to have a facility where you have doctors, lawyers, cops, judges have their own facility keeps them sick. It would keep me sick because the guy that's shooting dope under the bridge is not better than the alcoholic that's sitting behind the bench sentencing the guy that, that is shooting dope under the bridge. That don't make no sense to me. You're a drug addict, you're an alcoholic, we're all the same people. Yeah, level playing field. Exactly. But when you do that, the playing field isn't level. No, you're giving them the upper hand to still hold that power over you when you're the same person I am. Which is detrimental to their recovery. You it know? is. And, and and that's, to me, disturbing because it's like you're taking the dollar over the actual... And at the end of the day, addicts are a business. And it's sad, but it's the truth. It, addicts... The methadone clinics, yeah, you get your methadone for free. The state buys the methadone from this person. The government ain't doing nothing for nothing, so they, them, some, however they do it, do the insurance or whatever. It's none of my. I, I really don't care. But everybody's making money off of you getting high, <laughs> so everybody's making money off of you being an alcoholic. Mm. Don't get me wrong, I've been to a program saved my life, and eventually I'd like to do it myself. But you cannot run an establishment without having money coming in. You just can't do it. But you got to do it for the right reasons. Are you there to help people? Are you there to keep people sick? What was the... Um, so what was your your flipping point? What was your what was your flipping point when you when you um, when I decided I was done? Or did you did you come in and come in and go out and come in and go out? How, oh, just talk oh. about like your flipping point for recovery. So where you were at and, in 2011, like. I paroled. You know, I paroled to a house in Boston in Roxbury, and me coming from Fall River, moving to Boston. I'm like, it was like they put me right in a. Well, I had just came from a state prison. After at this time was six years, and they were like, "You can, you may parole. You can go to this halfway house in Roxbury." Shit, I've drove through Roxbury before, but I've never been there. So I was like, "Okay." I finally get into the to the halfway house, and I get there. I'm there for maybe an hour and a half, and they look at me. They're like, "What are you still doing here?" I'm like, "What are you talking about? You can't be in the house till seven o'clock." I'm like, "I just got dropped off by parole." They're like, "Oh yeah, you got to go find a meeting." Like, I'm not even from here. What do you mean I got to go find a meeting? They're like, yeah, you got to go find a meeting. <laughs> so here I am on parole. Just did six years. Literally out that day, like that hours day, ago? A couple hours before that. Was behind the wall, jogging in the yard, working out. And by that afternoon, I'm sitting in Roxbury trying to figure out where I'm going to go. How does that, how did, this isn't really drug related, but I'm interested. How does, so if you're in prison and you were jogging, they literally came to you and said, you're leaving today? Well, no, no, no. I knew the day I okay. was leaving. You know, they tell you, have all your know. stuff packed by 10 o'clock. Okay. The bus, you, we got to get you out. So. Got it. I so, knew I was leaving. And so I knew where I was going, but I didn't know that <laughs> once I got there, you couldn't be in the house on that day till seven o'clock and. It didn't matter that I had just gotten out of jail because that's not their problem. You know, you got to go find a meeting, go find a meeting. Or tell us you found a meeting, you know. <laughs> so here I am, you know, I go out and I'm on Mass Ave and I'm like, this is crazy. You know, me being the addict that I am, stood sober for about a week. Started going back and forth to Fall River and uh, picking up heroin because, you know, I'm not an addict no more, you know. I've been in jail for six years. I haven't got high like that, so I'm I'm good. I'm good. I'm not an addict no more, so I can sell it now. So I go to Fall River, and I'm picking up heroin, and I'm bringing it to the sober house, well, to the halfway house. I'm selling it out of there, you know, and there I am again, ego-driven, getting high, and it's everybody else's fault, not mine. So naturally, I go back to jail, and... uh you know, I met a girl, my wife today at that time, and 
I mean, maybe she did plant the seed, you know, but she came there to speak and that's how we met and I'm in jail and they tell I'm in Walpole and they's like, you got to visit. And I'm thinking it's the DA because of stuff I've done before. And sure enough, it's this girl that I met and, you know, we just got close since. And then, you know, I got out and I went to another halfway house and stood sober for a little while. And then I started doing the steroids and, you know, it just led from there, graduated the house, doing steroids the whole time, thinking that's sober. Because I don't know no better. I've never done the work. I never worked on myself. I don't know no better. I'm not shooting dope. I'm just, I'm shooting steroids. <laughs> I'm not getting high. And, uh, you know, I get my own apartment. Within a week, I'm getting high again. And, you know, she she did everything she, good, she could to plant them seeds because she's a recovering addict, so she knows. How she stood sober through me, I have no idea. So here I am driving back and forth to Fall River getting heroin and the heroin up here is garbage so I'm driving to Fall River every day and finally I don't even know if it was me that had enough finally she had enough and was like you're done get out and I had just had my my youngest son and you know here I am on Mass Ave waiting for the for the um, Greyhound to uh, go to uh, back to Fall River to get more dope and on the way back, I'm like, I'm done. I can't do this no more. So I go back to Mass Ave, and I called her, and I told her, if you don't get me into a detox, I'm going to die. And from that day, and it was crazy because I'm at this place where I got sober, and the, the guy that owns the place walks me around the yard, and he looks at me, and he's like, I got to be honest with you, Sean. People like you don't make it. And I don't know if I stood sober out of resentment. Maybe I did because I was going to prove this dude wrong. And I've been sober since. And I think I I am, if not the only one, maybe two or three of us out of everybody I got sober with. And I was the one that was not. If anybody had to bet on me, they were betting against me. And I was one of the only ones that stood sober. And maybe it was a fear out of, a fear of living that same life. I, I wasn't scared to go back to jail. Uh, I wasn't scared to lose everything because I've done it all before. I've lost everything and I, I was still happy. Was I happy really though? You know, I was miserable, but in my head, telling myself I'm happy. Not taking showers for weeks at a time, wearing the same clothes running the streets, but I'm happy, you know, so it, it it was, I think it was that, that day walking around that yard with him, him telling me that I couldn't get sober, because I, I'm in, I'm in a, I'm in a, um, a facility, and I'm treating this place just like jail, I'm pretty much gonna beat people up, I'm not living with people that I don't want to live with, and, and, I have 40 bars of soap and all kinds of cosmetics. And that's where you think because you want to be stocked up with cosmetics in case you go to the hole. But I'm on the street. But that's where your mind brings you. And so they go in my room and look in my room and they're like, "What? what's going on in here? And from that day on, it was like, I don't need this stuff to get this. I don't need anything. You know, I ended up in Portland, Maine, which I always thought, Maine, you would need cowboy boots or straw hats and... You know, and it, being scared of leaving Fall River and living a different life and have to do it on my own in a new place. I knew what it was like to be a citizen. And I knew what it was like to have gratitude and be happy. And I just ran with it. What was in Portland? Uh, Sober House. Portland, Maine. It was, it's a different, it's a different culture out there. <laughs> it's uh, very different. But... There's still a lot of drugs. I could have got high. I just didn't want them. I was done with it. You know? In the house? Drugs? or No, no. Yeah. I went to a pretty good house. Good. I ended up getting kicked out of that um, facility I went to. You know, you're, you're only there for 28 to 30 days. They kept me on longer, you know, because I still had that addict mindset. 
you become a monitor and I was a monitor and I had the day room. It was like the TV room and I would have to get up early in the morning and go clean it. Well, it's a guy's and girl's place. So I was letting the guys and the girls go up there and then I just lock it behind them so they wouldn't know anybody was up there. And the people doing it wanted to get honest because they wanted to stay clean, which they never did. <laughs> and they told on the whole situation. And I couldn't see it for what it was then, but it was their fault, not mine, for letting them do it. It was their fault because they told, you know. And without me letting them in, it wouldn't be no situation, you know. So it wasn't my fault. No, I had nothing to do with it. It was them. <laughs> and... Huh. They were mad at me, you know, they kicked me out, and my wife knew the people that ran the whole place, knew the owner, because my wife's gone through the place a couple of times, and my wife had just left from a visit when they told me they were kicking me out, and they called my wife, my wife had just got home, and they were like, uh, you gotta come back because we're kicking them out. And they told my wife the situation, well, they made it sound like I was going up there with other... <laughs> Messing around, yeah. Yeah, but the owner of the place broke it down for my wife and was like, no, it wasn't him. He was letting people. And my wife just told him, if you let him leave, he's going to die. And I'm in the place packing up my stuff, and they came to me, and they were like, uh, come to the office. We want to have a talk with you. I'm like, all right. So I go into the office to like tell us the truth what happened. It's like the gig was up, so I told him what happened. And he was like, you have to give me your word that you're not going to do nothing to these people and we'll send you to a place tomorrow morning. And at that point in my life, I, I was giving him my word, but I was going to do something. And then that night, I'm laying there thinking like, wow, these people really do want to help you. And they kept their word, so I kept mine. I went to a house that they sent me to, and I learned how to live from there. You know, life's been great since. The feeling I get now, I'm going to run with it because I don't want to live like that no more. Mm. I just don't want to do it. What do you think, do you have, like, something? For me, fellowship is definitely the most important thing for me right now in my recovery, I need to be around people who are like me. I know that when I'm not, even for a day or two, and I get disconnected, I get wacky. It's funny you say that That's because. Well, I was wondering what, because, you, you know, I can see you you have a good um, way of living right now. You're doing well for yourself. I'm wondering what, if there's anything that's key so to you right a now. Fellowship, uh, fellowship is one of my biggest shortcomings because... One of the kids that I'm helping now, you know, we're all in a group text, but I'm friends with all of them, but they all know I'm not one that you would call to go hang out with and confide in. Is this well, a, I am. like a sober group text? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's from my uh, one of my, my home group in Mount Rose. So one of the kids, the kid that I'm helping says in a group text that three of them are in, it was like, you, we're going to do this, you want to come? And the kid that I'm helping says, oh, I can't. I'm going to meet up with Sean tomorrow. The other kid texts him on the side. He's like, whoa, what do you mean you're going to meet Sean tomorrow? Nobody calls Sean to hang out <laughs> because they all know how I am. I'm a, I'm an asshole. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to speak how I feel. And they're all good people, you know, and and they everybody knows I do my own thing and I don't let anybody judge what I'm doing. And he was like, well, I asked Sean if he could help me and bring me through the book. And he was like, okay, that makes sense because nobody's calling Sean to hang out. And maybe that is a short, because I've been thinking about that a lot. That is a shortcoming for me, you know? And that's when I realized I had to go out of my circle to ask somebody to sponsor me that is totally different from who I am. So I can learn off of them how how I should really live a sober life because the meetings that I've been going to, I've never been to these meetings. Never. I like them. And I like that nobody knows me there. And I like that. <laughs> Here I am introducing you to everybody. And I like <laughs> that nobody knows anything about me and I can start fresh. 
I see. Oh, I see what you're saying. You know what I mean? I, I don't like to go walk into a meeting and everybody's, hey, Sean, how you doing? Hey, buddy, you know, how's your wife? How's your son? Uh, I don't. I just, I don't like to be the center of attention. I don't like it. And when I walk into a meeting that nobody knows me, I feel comfortable. Nice. Because I don't feel like I have to fake for anybody. And anybody that knows me knows I don't fake for anybody. But I don't have to feel... Like, I don't know. I just don't have to feel like. Yeah, I know what you. It's I, it's weird to explain. I just I, I go know, into it's a fresh. meeting. It's yes, fresh. I go into a meeting because I want to do it. I don't want to go into a meeting because I'm obligated to do it. That doesn't keep me sober. It doesn't. I hear you. And I, I'm trying to stare away from. To be honest, is how my wife got sober. You know, because my. I go into a meeting, everybody knows my wife, everybody knows me, and it's like, I'm trying to stare away from that. I want to go into a meeting, and they're like, hey, how you doing? I want people to think I'm a newcomer, you know? Like, not that I am, but not that I want them to think I'm a newcomer, but I'm new to that meeting, and just to see what other places give, because I'm so used to the same stuff over and over and over again. It gets repetitive, and then I get... Then I get um, comfortable. Comfortable. I get like I don't want to go. I, I I get stuck Stale. in that. Yeah, and that's why going to new meetings, I feel it's great that you realize it. It, it may it makes me it makes it better for me. I like the fellowship. Uh, don't get me wrong. I like fellowship. I'm in a union, so that's big. I just don't like to be the center of attention. I don't like it. At I this point in my life, there's a lot more people that need more attention than I do, you know? Yeah, I don't know. It's My life's so normal today. It's so easy. Don't get me wrong. I have stuff going on in my life like everybody else oh, does. Yeah. But we make it less complicated. It definitely is. It's so much easier. Mm, it's able to be there to help the next person is what makes me realize that this really works you know now i have people that call me today and say sean what do you think about this oh sean what do you think about that and i would say nine out of ten times i have a good answer for them and if i don't i'm gonna just tell them you have to figure this out on your own you know like nobody has an answer for that (laughs) like yeah or ask somebody else yeah or ask somebody else yep and that's the gifts of it it is the gifts of it and it's that's the that's the you know, he was brilliant in writing the 12 steps because he wind, he sews it all up. He brings it all together and puts a nice bow on it at the end with your freedom will come with giving away what you've received, helping somebody else. That's where true joy comes from. And I've it's so that. much harder to, to figure out a different way of life because I'm 39 years old. I think I was doing heroin at 15 years old, you know, so that's a long that's over 20 years of shooting heroin in the life of crime and to to change your life to be say now I'm this sober guy I'm not a spiritual guru I'm not a monk I just know right from wrong today and I know I need a higher power in my life and I knew I had to do something and this book was going to get me out of it and that's what I did and I did it truly and I did it how I was supposed to and that's what I try to help people do now awesome it's easy to go back to your old ways everybody's still on that corner waiting for you nobody ever wants to see you do good if they're not i heard a guy say that that the other day he goes just just try not to drink give this program 90 days and in 90 days all the wreckage all the booze all the drugs is going to be there waiting for you. it's not going anywhere no it's just getting them 90 days but even and that may be a bad example. Even one day, you know. Yeah. Even give it five days. You well, know? you can't do. Know. See, I tell this to all everybody I help. After you're all done with this book, if you choose to get high or drunk afterwards, you made your own choice because you were removed from all of it. So now you have a choice. I don't want to hear. I'm, I was stuck in my head, so I went and got high. I gave you the out. Just like it was given to me. So now that you got high or drunk, 
or you procrastinated on doing the work, you made your own choice. I can't help you. Yeah, it's here's a blueprint to living a good life. Not a perfect life, like shit's going to happen, but here's a blueprint on how to live, live life. You want to take the journey? Come join us. Exactly, because if I can do it, live in the attic that I was, I was the bottom of the barrel, rob people, Rob old ladies at ATM machines. Seen people walking down the street, rip their necklaces off their necks. Uh, stole from my own wife. Stole from my own mother. The bottom of the barrel junkie. I did it. I changed my life. I'm a citizen today, and I'm happy to say I'm a citizen. And I help people. I am happy to know you. <laughs> Thank you. You're a friend. I love it. I love you, brother. Welcome. You know, like, um... I don't know. I don't know what else to say. I'm so glad we got to do this. Yeah, I can edit this shit out, but um, it's good. It's an hour and ten minutes, and uh, thanks for coming in. Thank you. All right. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.